This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with my co-host, Anita McKee, on the Master Gardener Hour. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. And our very special guest is Henning von Schmeling. Good morning, Henning. Good morning, Cheryl and Anita. Uh, Henning is the Senior Director of Operations at the Chattahoochee Nature Center in Roswell, and we are going to talk about winter birding and berries this morning. Henning, your expertise in the natural world is just unsurpassed, and we're lucky to have you here. And there's so much more to learn every single day that I'm outside. I know, and you you spend a lot of time outside. Henning has a great farm north of Atlanta and spends every day at the Nature Center. We've kind of been transitioning into winter um, the last couple of shows, and there, we've talked about all the plants and getting things going in the garden, but today we want to talk about attracting birds, wildlife, and the real reason that people really, if they're true gardeners, they plant certain plants in their gardens, which attract birds and wildlife. Well, absolutely. I mean, we don't want to lose out on having these animals in our backyard and enjoy them and uh, watch them fly around or, or utilize our land for their you know, for their families or for raising young or anything like that. So there are many different plants you can use to attract birds into your backyard. Berries are a wonderful addition to any garden because they last for a long time. Uh, they are packed with energy because they they, they want birds. A, a, a holly wants to have a bird eat the berry in order to disperse the seed. The small seeds are inside. So the tree produces these berries that have a lot of energy, a lot of food resource that the bird can eat, digest, and when it goes to the bathroom, a new plant might appear where the dropping went. Procreation. Yep. And that can be an issue as well with non-natives. But wherever you are within this country and and you're listening to this, you know, make sure, especially with, with plants that produce abundant berries or seeds that you try to stick with natives to your region. So if you're in the southeast, try not to plant too much privet because privet produces abundant berries, which the birds really like. Uh, I have seen flocks of cedar waxwings coming in and eating the berries completely off of the bushes on, on privet, and that's what causes it to become an invasive species. Now, privet is from China. I know that everybody around the country has their nemesis out there of a non-native plant. Well, um, privet is definitely one in Georgia. Yes. I mean, in the northeast, you have buckthorns, you have uh, mahonias, you have iliagnus. All of these produce berries. All of them are ingested by birds. All of them are spread by that. So it's very important to, to be mindful of your selections in your garden. I tell you, the best example of that that I can come to, that I can think of is privet located along the corridor of the Chattahoochee River. It's never been planted along the corridor of the Chattahoochee River. It's been bought at a nursery, planted in a homeowner's yard, and then the woods along the river corridor, which are owned by the government, they've never planted anything there. They're full of privet and uh, eleagnus. Yes. Yeah. So and that's how it gets there, obviously, the birds is for through you. the birds. Those are your bluebirds and your mockingbirds and cedar waxwings, all of these birds come in, eat the berries, and they go down to the river, either they get water or there's shelter down there, and when they go to the bathroom, 
That's there you it. Go. That's, That's it. it. Well, they keep birds keep our gardens alive. I mean, you look out. I mean, we've talked about having the great garden structure in the winter, and you can look out the window. But to see the wildlife and see the birds out your window, you know, with a home for a bird, a bird bath, and our bird feeders. I mean, that's just really what we want to kind of get into the nitty yeah. gritty of today. There's basically four principles that you have to, uh, or, or four things that you have to have in your yard in order to be successful in attracting wildlife, including birds. You have to have food sources. So that could be a bird feeder, that could be sunflowers, that could be berry-producing plants. You need to have water accessible somewhere, either be a bird bath, a pond, a waterfall, anything like that. In the winter, you do need to keep it frost-free. They make specialty items that basically keep it just above freezing so it doesn't become an ice block. You need shelter, so evergreens, hedges, uh, brush piles, things like that, and then you need a place for them to raise their babies. So a bluebird box, a uh, very thick holly where they can hide. Hawthorns are great for birds to nest in because they have all these thorns on it to keep predators out. So those are the four things that you have to have in order to have a successful backyard habitat for wildlife. Right. Uh, I have the most bird nest in my yard or in my roses. It's crazy. They like the thorn. They like the protection. It's not like the perfect, it's not the perfect plant form, but that's where they go to because they do want the protection. Okay, well, let's kind of, let's start out talking. I'm going to kind of go a little bit out of order because, but let's talk about habitat. Um, You know, the plants that draw, you made a good point, and I know, Anita, you talked about evergreens. I mean, the, the evergreens, as opposed to deciduous trees for shelter for animals. I mean, when you have an evergreen, it doesn't mean that the leaves stay on there forever. Right, um, they're, right. They're on there for another three to six months, and then the plant does drop them. As a perfect example here in Atlanta would be the southern magnolias. Whoever has one in their front yard or in their backyard and grows them really loves it when it blooms, but despises them when they are dropping their when leaves. they're shedding. So, and apparently Anita is one of them, so yeah. she must have one. And, Not anymore. Um, yeah, that's, that's one that I actually hear in Atlanta, even though the southern magnolia provides great berries or fruit for birds to eat. They provide shelter. They provide a place for animals to raise their young. Um, I don't recommend using them in Atlanta, even though they're native to Georgia. They're native to the coastal plain of Georgia. I'm looking at us more from a mm-hmm. from a natural history background that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, Southern magnolias are natively found in the coastal plain of Georgia right along the Atlantic. They bury or they fruit in the fall during migration. Talk about that because people that can't visualize a magnolia, they think of the big white flower and the glossy green leaves. But describe the pod that you're talking about. Well, when I was growing up, I would call them hand grenades. Oh, so they're they about look the like size. They look like hand grenades. They have a handle on one end that you can pop off and you can toss. <laughs> so I'm still a child at heart. Yeah, so you are. You uh, are. So uh, they are green in the beginning, very hard uh, on the outside. They have all these little pockets on the inside with a slit on the outside. As the fruit ripens on the inside, it splits. As the pod dries out, it splits open. A red seed comes out. 
a red berry with a seed on the inside that is attached to the seed pod with a small filament, a white filament. Okay. So sometimes you'll be seeing these trees and the, and the berries will be hanging out of them, dangling in the wind, waiting for a bird to come to pick it off, eat it, take off the skin and the pulp that's on the inside, and then when they go to the bathroom, there's a fresh seed to germinate. Amazing. And this plant, the magnolias, actually have evolved or adapted to that kind of an environment because they... If a seed drops to the ground underneath a magnolia tree and it still has the pulp and the skin on the outside, it will not germinate. So it has to be... It has to be dispersed. It has has to to be digested through the birds. Yes. In order to eliminate the outer skin. Right. Otherwise, it will not germinate. Okay. And it's an adaptation for your kids. I mean, how many of you have kids? I do. Yeah, a lot and, of us. You know, you don't always want them to be freeloaders off of you. So if all of the seeds that drop underneath a magnolia tree germinate, they have the same sun requirements. They have the same nutrient requirements out of the soil, the same water requirements. So the mother tree that produced the seeds will have all those things robbed away from her, from all of her offspring that are growing underneath. Yeah, very So true. this is a great way for a plant and many plants uh, to disperse your seed. There you go. So, I mean, so it, it, it is important mm-hmm. to choose the right plant for the habitat and in turn for the right food. Correct. Okay. Um, do any species like prefer like man-made type nesting? I mean, you always oh. think of bluebirds and marlins yeah. and that kind of thing. If you think about, you know, uh, nesting boxes to put out there, yes. Uh, bluebird boxes have become very popular over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, many people install uh, long, and I mean a couple hundred mile long bluebird trails where every 50 yards they place a bluebird box. Right, right. You know, mostly through the Midwest where you have all that land. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to increase the numbers of bluebirds. Bluebirds were very rare back in the 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And people became concerned, and they started building boxes according to the size that was required, the opening. They were very protective of their birds. Wait a minute. Where what did they? Where did the bluebirds live before these boxes came along? Uh, dead trees with okay. cavities. Okay, that and was what do we do with most, Yeah, okay. what do we do with most of our dead trees in our yards? Okay, we cut them down. No okay. more nesting sites for them. Okay. Um, there's also other birds that have come in that are taking over some of these same nesting sites. One of them is the starling the European starling that was brought over to this country by the Shakespeare Society uh, in 18-something. And from those original 20 or 30 pair that were brought over, every single starling that we see in the U.S. originate from those original uh, few birds that were released into the environment. Wow. So, And there's millions of them all over the eastern United States. And they take over habitat from bluebirds. They feed on the same kind of insects and animals that they like. They eat berries as well. They nest in cavities as well. And yeah, will larger. they take over the bluebird houses with the specific diameter holes? They and will not. That's where the oh. research came in. Okay. A tree trunk, you can't really determine how large the hole right. will be. If a squirrel comes in, they're going to open it up. If a woodpecker comes in and they want to see what's inside, they'll open it up a little bit. So the hole is made larger. A bluebird will still use it, but will then be driven out by a starling. Now, Are they like keep, a stronger, bigger bird? They're or bigger what? and stronger, yes. Okay. I have seen uh, starling nests in a bluebird box that had been where the, the opening had been chewed open a little bit larger by a squirrel where the bluebirds were nesting. Starling comes in. They have a very long, sharp beak. Killed the bluebird in the nest. 
and then built their nest on top of the dead carcass of the bluebird. Oh, that's sick. Yes. Okay. So we're so, starlings aren't on our. What's the good things about starlings? Anything? Okay. He's blind. Yeah. Hey, Henning is speechless. I'm not going well, to. I'm not going to go there with, for any with, of you starling fans. Henning von Schmeling. I'm from Germany, where they're native, and they are not very common anymore. Um, I would love to pack them all up and ship them back. Hey, so he, he's a good shot with his uh, BB gun. Yeah. What? Um, Anita brought up a point when we were talking about the show about the orientation facing northeast southwest. Is that only for like a boxed bird home, or is that? It's for for bluebird boxes or screech owl boxes or any of the boxes that you can put out there. They do have favorite orientations or placements. Um, I like to face mine towards the east, and I like to put um, a bluebird box, for example, anywhere from six to eight feet off the ground. I like to place them with almost nothing around them. Maybe a fence line or a small tree within about 10 yards of the opening of the box. Is that so, so the babies can have a place to jump to? Fly, fly to, to their first yeah. flight so they can get higher up okay. and get away from the predators. Okay. Uh, so, yes, I think orientation can make a difference in your success of, of uh, having babies uh, in your backyard. And it's because of the morning sun to morning warm sun it up? Warm them up. Okay. First thing in the morning. Okay. So that's that makes, when it's the coldest. That makes sense. Okay. That's, that's good to know. So, the I have a question. I have a question. I have a bluebird box. Mm-hmm. We love it, but our biggest problem: nut hatches. They are nasty little creatures. They're adorable, but they take over the bluebird box, and we have to tape the hole shut until the nut hatches find another place to reside, and then we open it back up for the bluebirds. Hey, Henning, I'm going to let you hold that thought, and Anita, because that's a great question, and we're going to be back in just a minute with the Master Gardener Hour. Healthcare Consumerism Radio. Learn, connect, share. Join us every Friday at 11 o'clock to learn all those confusing issues around healthcare, Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid. We'll help you find the answers, help you stay in compliance. Join us. Friday at 11 o'clock. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with my co-host, Anita McKee, and Henning Von Schmeling of the Chattahoochee Nature Center, and we're talking about birding and berries. Um, Anita has bluebird boxes, and there we were just talking about nut hatches. Nut hatches. Okay, yeah. Henning, give do, her do, some do advice. Do you have the white-breasted nut hatch or the brown-headed nut hatch? Are um, they really small with a little brown cap on them? Oh, gosh, let me think, think, think. Um, I think they were white-headed. Or and they the, had the a little breasted. bit, they had the blue down the side. That's the white-breasted nuthouse. You're That's very it. fortunate to have those in your backyard checking oh. out nesting boxes. Because well, can she not. make another type home for those guys? Okay, Typ- tell me. Typically, the, 
The type of habitat that nuthatches like to nest in is a little bit different than what a bluebird wants. So you must have a little bit of both of what they like. So okay. the nuthatches are coming in because it's almost perfect for them, and the bluebirds are coming in because it's almost perfect for them. Mm-hmm. Nuthatches typically like to nest a little bit higher up in trees. Uh, they like to nest in a little bit more shaded environments than bluebirds. Bluebirds don't mind being in full sun. Nuthatches do. Nuthatches are typically a woodland species. Bluebirds are more of an open field species. So you mostly will see your bluebirds out in the meadow areas and grassy areas and brush piles, brush areas where they can find a lot of their food. Mm-hmm. Nuthatches find most of their food in tree trunks, a lot in crevices of trees and things like that where their insects live. Okay. So they don't come really. They'll come to feeders to eat seeds. You might have seen them at bird feeders. Um, what I would recommend for you to do is increase your bluebird boxes. Just put a couple more out there so you can enjoy both. And in there a certain um, footage that they have to be apart for? I have seen uh, bluebird boxes placed a foot apart, and one of them being used by a bluebird and the other one by a tree swallow because they feed on different insects. They're mm-hmm. not competition to one another. The tree swallow flies on, uh, uh, eats on the wing. They only eat insects that fly in the sky. The bluebird is like a hawk. They sit somewhere, pounce down on their prey on the ground, mm-hmm. and then eat it. Okay. So there's no competition. The same thing will hold true between the nuthatches and the bluebird. So you can put them fairly close, you know, one on one tree and then 10 feet away another one. Hey, the beauty of this whole conversation is that you can have a different type. You can have so many birds coexisting in one small backyard garden. That's right, and it's an advantage to all of them, to all the individual species. If you have two different species of birds, both of them have the same predators, mm-hmm. hawks, snakes. Mm-hmm. So instead of having four eyes, two pairs of eyes, looking out for predators, all of a sudden you are out there with eight eyes. So you're more likely to spot predators before anybody else can, you know, so okay. you can do something about it. So cohabitation like that is not unusual in the natural, uh, in, uh, out in nature, where there's a benefit of doing that. Uh, many birds, like the purple martin, for example, that only nest in large colonies, one of the reasons they nest in large colonies is because they're strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. A hawk comes in, tries to get one of their babies, all of a sudden 50 to 100 birds go after them. So wow. That's the big houses. The, the big houses, the purple martin houses that people put up. Uh, we have put one up about eight years ago at the farm. Then within two years, we had to put a second one up. With another two years, we had to put a third one up. And now this year, we're thinking about our fourth one. Our colony is about 70 pairs right now, My which goodness. is 140 birds. Wow. So that's a lot of birds. So, do they each have their own little individual hole they go they in? They do. It's like a, a like a um, condo, a little condo. You know, you can have them in all different sizes and shapes. Do they, does each cords. bird go back into the same hole every they day? They do not. Oh well, th- yes, they do. So it's a family unit that lives in one nest, mm-hmm. and they protect that. But as a colony, they all protect each other. Okay. Okay. So. Okay, God, this is we're so going interesting. Off on no, here. this is great. We're we're totally okay. on track. Okay, so place all these houses out there, and everybody will be happy, including yourself. Okay, the- I know nut hatches can be very aggressive, mm-hmm. and if you don't provide multiple boxes, you may only have nut hatches and no bluebirds. Okay, so if you put more than one up, um, 
I don't know how your uh, how big your yard is, but you can place a box along the fence line or along the property line every 25 to 50 feet. Okay, and you get multiple and you get multiple species using it. You'll you will not get a bluebird in every single house. Mm-hmm. Cuz there's not enough food for them. So, but you'll get nut hatches, you can get Carolina wrens, you can get chickadees, you can get titmice. All of those birds nest in cavities and they have been have grown accustomed to using bluebird boxes. Okay, Okay, because I always thought that you attracted a certain kind of bird by the diameter of the hole, of the opening to the home. I have seen bluebirds nesting in cavities or in holes where the hole is three inches across. Okay. So So that's really not the determining factor. It's the predators that you're trying to keep out mostly. Oh, gotcha. So a bluebird will more likely go into a smaller hole with a cavity behind it than a larger one. So nobody else can go in. Correct. Got it. Okay, just often a quick tangent, but it, I did want to talk about this. Cleaning houses out in the spring, winter, fall, summer, when do you do it? How do you go about getting these bluebird houses and your bird feeders, the water s- supplies? I mean, how do you, what's the best way to keep all that stuff clean and ready to go? What I do is I go in once a year, sometime between November and probably January, February, somewhere in the, in the dead of winter when it's the coldest. And, uh, and that's it's protection for me as well because a lot of times once the bluebirds or any bird is done nesting, wasps will move in. They build their nest in there. So if you do it too early, they're still active. You open it up, all of a sudden the swarm of wasps is in your face. So I wait till after a couple of good frosts. I clean out all the nesting material. I do not leave it on the ground next to the box. I haul it off to the compost pile. There are many... Um, parasites that live through the winter in the nesting material. So if you just drop it down to the ground, there's a great chance of reinfecting. So okay. we put them in a, in a five-gallon container and haul them off to the compost pile as far away as possible. I also use a 10% bleach solution. So I mix it up in a spray bottle. Once I take everything out, rake all the material out, clean it up as best as I can, I spray the whole house on the inside and on the outside with a 10% bleach solution because that will kill any mites, any parasites, any eggs. So you don't, you have a completely clean box for the next year. Very few birds nest on old material. They always like to nest and you bring all new material in and, and build a new nest. Large birds that you're not going to attract into your backyard unless you're very well, fortunate. They have those giant, like the big seabirds and everything. Correct. They or if, the same if, you know, at the at the Chattahoochee Nature Center where I work, we have uh, wood duck boxes, and we do not clean those out. They like their material in there year after year. So what we do is we just spray them down, and we'll leave the material. So we still kill any of the parasites, but. You know, there's still nesting material in there. Wood ducks really don't bring in nesting material. So they usually nest. Who makes their nest? It's pretty much soft, rotting wood on the inside that keeps it soft. Oh, I got it. So what we've done in our wood duck boxes is we added pine shavings. So the pine shavings is that soft material that they like. So you could take that out every year and then you have to replace it. That's a lot of work. So, because wood duck boxes usually are 15 feet up in the air, so you got to get a tall ladder, and you know it's not the safest thing in the world. So, usually, what we just do is either leave it alone or just go in once a year and spray it. Well, the wood duck lay an egg just in a on top of wood and not in a nest. No, they have to nest in cavities. Okay. Okay. So. Okay, got it. 
There are many birds like that. Bald eagles add to their nests every year. They wouldn't come to a box, but they add layer after layer. So, you know, many birds like to have their old material available to them. Okay. So, and then, okay, so you've cleaned it out. It's ready to go. It's pristine. When are you going to see them? Bluebirds, if you want to talk specifically about bluebirds, they start, the males start checking out nesting boxes probably end of February to March here in Atlanta. So up north it would be a little bit later. In Florida, Texas, it could be a little bit earlier. So the male starts taking out the territory. Usually they will try to find one or two boxes. The female is typically the one that picks the one that she wants to nest in. He attracts her to the box, shows it off, and if she doesn't like it, they move on to another box. So, so the color Anita, was wrong. The color, the color was wrong, right? Anita, the color, Anita, interior Anita, decorations Anita's were Anita's a gardener yeah. and a designer, so, so the color's got to be right. Yeah, or that's yeah. right. Yeah. She's moving on. <laughs> what, okay, is, that's is another color than white. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's so interesting. Okay, I got another question. Bird feeders. I see so many bird feeders, and they look so nasty in people's yards. Those things should be cleaned out how often? Uh, twice a year. I mean, twice put them in your year. dishwasher. They run through the dishwasher just fine. Get all the food out. Try to scrape out as much of the bottom as you can. Take them apart. Put them in your dishwasher and just run them through there. Okay. Okay. It'll clean them out, sterilize them to a certain extent, and you can put them right back out. Now, with my natural history background, I don't encourage supplementally feeding birds with bird feeders. Now, here I touch the subject maybe that we don't want to discuss. No, that's fine. I, th- this is a, an open forum, and you're, no. you have reasons for it. For it, right. I mean, it's it, the bottom line is when you feed them, especially through winter times, you will artificially allow um, sick birds, elderly birds, to make it through the winter and reproduce the next year. In effect, possibly spreading diseases and possibly having an inferior population reproduce. Only the strong survive. Only the strong, right. If your habitat cannot support the number of birds that naturally live there with the plants and the the habitat that's there, you've artificially increased it by providing more food because that's one of the biggest resources that they're looking for. Okay, you know, we're a group of soft Americans and we like mm-hmm. to take care of these creatures right. that are they don't know, they don't need are, it. they don't need the supplemental food to survive as a species. Okay. So we'll leave it at that. Well that. I'll feel good then On, because I leave all my bird it. feeders that, empty right. then. I now, forget to put food in them. So I, I saw this book that was published in Germany about the value of a bird. Um, I should have brought it with me today. It's a wonderful um, example of how we can put a value on the bird. And they actually said, even though there might be some kind of a um, a, a detrimental effect to the environment by artificially feeding birds, the benefits that humans get from them is great. Who does not enjoy sitting in their breakfast room, looking out the window at the bird feeder and seeing all the activity of all the birds, hearing the birds in the morning, seeing the squabbles between them? It brings joy to us. And this book equated it and and put a value on it by saying people don't have to buy the Valium pills anymore because they get their peace and quiet from seeing the birds. So they've added the value to it. And it really does, when you see birds acting along a bird feeder and you see the interactions, it is a calming effect on humans. So you can look at it that way as well. I mean, we do find a um, 
you know, some, some pleasure in having the birds in our backyard, we've already destroyed the natural environment in our backyards anyway. I mean, we're in an urban environment. We've built roads everywhere. We have very few forests. And when you look at a whole population, let's take the northern cardinal that we have here in Atlanta. They're found all over the eastern United States. In urban environments, they're getting fed. In non-urban, they're not. So they're still on their own and have healthy populations. The number of birds that get fed in this country, even though there's a, there are many bird feeders, is probably less than 1%. So there's okay, really so very that, little that damage. A, that's a fact. Yeah. 1% of the or birds less. that li- are less. less that live in this country or less. are fed by Probably bird Probably a lot less, yeah. Okay, well, the or point, have supplemental food. The point that I was just thinking when you said that, if you, instead of putting a bird feeder in your backyard, put the native plant and then watch the birds go to the native plant and Correct. eat there. And put but that when, outside your breakfast room. But once window. the berries are gone, okay. the berries are gone and the birds are gone. Okay. Because they have to find more food to survive. So. Okay, Henning, we're going to take a little bitty break with the Master okay. Gardener Hour, and we're going to come back and talk about this in just a minute. Healthcare Consumers and Radio. Learn, connect, share. Join us every Friday at 11 o'clock to learn all those confusing issues around healthcare, Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid. We'll help you find the answers, help you stay in compliance. Join us. Friday at 11 o'clock. Hi, this is Kate Copsey inviting you to listen year-round to America's Homegrown Veggie Show every Saturday at 10 a.m. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that eating too little and skipping meals can actually cause you to gain weight? When you do not take enough calories in, your body can actually stop you from losing weight. Your body works best when it is adequately fueled. If you fail to eat enough, your metabolism will slow down and your body will become stressed and actually hold on to fat. This will lead to muscle loss instead of fat. Exercise and lightweight training will increase endurance and muscle mass and will boost both your metabolism and your sense of well-being. Eat three well-rounded meals a day containing a lean protein, fiber, and a complex carbohydrate, such as a whole grain, with two snacks, such as fruits or nuts. These will promote healthy weight loss that is long-term. Prior to starting an exercise program, remember to see your doctor if you have any medical problems. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verifying your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with my co-host, Anita McKee and Henning Von Schmeling, and we're talking about birds. And we're also kind of talking about a controversial subject, and that is not feeding birds in your backyard, but kind of going back to the old way of doing it and planting natives in order to encourage and feed healthy birds. So we've got a long list of super cool um, plants that 
Bird's Love. Um, Henning, I know you probably have some different comments about some of these choices, but we kind of came up with these off the cuff. No, these um, are all really, really good choices. But let's talk a little bit about these natives and luring them and using them in your landscape. No. Well, I mean, a, a few of these um, probably would work better if you have a larger yard, like black cherry mm-hmm. is a wonderful plant for uh, wildlife. It has beautiful white flowers in the springtime on these long spires that attract many, many insects. So the pollinators come in. They get the nectar from there. They transfer pollen. Then they produce the berries in late summer, early fall, and the birds really like them. Issues with black cherry. They're uh, short-lived, like most cherries are. They don't live very long. They They can be messy. They have diseases that unless you're willing to treat for them, they're going to have cankers on them. They have trunk split. So there's issues with that. So that would be a plant that I would recommend more of a natural garden instead of a formal garden in your front yard or things like that. If you're looking for something that's a little bit more formal, you know, viburnums are great. I mean, you mentioned those in here. They are great. They can be, many of them have a natural shape already that is perfect for a front yard or, or right. a more formal environment. They produce plenty of flowers and plenty of fruit. They're so gorgeous, too. And there's so many, there's many, so many varieties. So you get fall color. They're also, they are very dense. So they're a favorite nesting site for birds. So viburnums, wherever you are in this country, there are native selections in your area. Here in the south, arrowwood viburnum, rusty haw viburnum, uh, plum leaf viburnum. Those are all great plants to use. They're dense. They bloom well. They are drought tolerant, heat tolerant. So all around a great plant, even in a formal setting. So <coughs> winter berry is another one you mentioned here. It's one of the many hollies. Um, many people don't realize that most hollies are deciduous, and winter berry is one of those that is deciduous in the winter. No leaves on it. So it really shows off the berries a lot more than an evergreen holly that we're familiar with, with American holly or some of the other ones that are grown throughout the country. How come I never see winter berry in a nursery in the south? Good question. We would like to change that and promote native plants more. Now, we do have them available occasionally at the Chattahoochee Nature Center plant sale, and you can get them through mail order catalogs. Mail order. or There was a big push from the National Arboretum in in Washington, D.C., and then also Michael Durr at the University of Georgia in Athens to promote winter berries in the horticulture of trade. And a few of them have been very successful, and others have gone by the wayside. So some of his introductions are still around. They're being produced, but not as much as they should. Okay, Whole Foods sells winterberry. Mm-hmm. $9.99 for five branches that are mm-hmm. 12 inches long. We should mm-hmm. all grow them and sell them during the holidays. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge industry, and it's mostly coming out of the Pacific Northwest, where the growing environment or the growing conditions are very good, lots of uh, rain, um, even temperature. And um, Is there a species that the, is native to Georgia? Well, the winterberry is native. Oh, the, okay, yeah, straight winterberry. Winterberry, which is okay. Ilex verticillata. Okay. And uh, there are many great cultivars that have been made from that. One of them is called Stoplight. And the first time I ever saw it was in downtown Aiken, South Carolina. A good friend of mine, uh, Bob McCartney, planted a small arboretum throughout the whole city of Aiken, South Carolina. Wherever he found the spot, he just planted something. 
That's good. Which, which is great. Uh, and he planted a small grove of this cultivar called Stoplight. And I didn't know he planted it. And then one fall, I was driving along, and all of a sudden, there's this huge mass of red berries on a shrub that I recognize as winter berry, but I've never seen him with that many fruit. And I had to stop. So, so did so, you name it Stoplight? No, or it was already named. It, it was okay. already named Stoplight, okay. which is kind of interesting. So um, that's a great cultivar of that. Now with hollies, you have to remember you have to have males. Yeah, we got to talk about that. They have to be cross pollinated. Viburnums do not. Cherries do not. You don't have to. They're perfect flowers. In, in in hollies, they're imperfect flowers. That means that one plant will have the female flower and the other plant will have the male flower. So they only have those specific reproductive structures in their flowers. So they have to be pollinated in order to produce fruit. And nurseries don't ID those, do they? Some do, some don't. Um, most of the commercially available uh, hollies that we purchase at nurseries are uh, can be pollinated by many other types of hollies. It doesn't have to be its specific species. Many of the hollies that we grow are hybrids, and they can produce fruit with any other holly pollen. It doesn't have to come from that particular species or that okay. hybrid. Well, that's, okay. So many of us have native hollies in our backyards that we might not even know that they're there because they're male. They have very small flowers. They never have any fruit. So it's a plant that we really don't look at. But that plant, that particular male, could pollinate your Buford hollies and your uh, Nellie R. Stevens holly and all these hybrids that we have there. Okay. But they don't produce viable seeds. Okay. They produce okay. a fruit, but not viable seeds. So okay. um, that can be an issue. When we sell them, when you buy hollies online from smaller companies, typically, they they are conscious uh, or conscientious about it, and they will let you know if it's a male or female. Okay. And they will also let you know that you need to purchase um, both in order to get good fruit on these. That's interesting. I want to talk about this. I read this, and I kind of, like, never thought about this. Color ranking of berries and their attractiveness to birds. Is that true? Yes. Okay, let's talk about that. So I've noticed over the years, and then I started doing some research about it as well, birds have particular favorite colors that they like. So the red berries are one that they like. Blue blackberries they like. Yellows and whites. Blue blackberries. Blue or black berries. Oh, blue or black. Okay, I didn't even have those in my list. Okay. Uh, Well, I mean, you have. Yeah, uh, thanks. I mean, viburnums have kind of a dark blue. Um, What else do you have on here? Most of these are reds. Now, many hollies have cultivars that are yellow berried. Right. They don't like them as much. They will eat them in a pinch. So what I've noticed is at the Chattahoochee Nature Center that there's a progression of berries disappearing on the property. So purples and reds are the first ones that disappear. We have American Beauty Berry with purple berries. We have American Beauty Berry with pinkish berries. And then we have white cultivars. Right. The purple ones are gone before the first frost. They just love them. The pink ones are next. And the white ones, a lot of times, are still on the shrub in January and February as the yeah, last Yeah, I found record. that in my yard because I yeah. bought all three of those, and it's true. So they do have a color preference on what they're going to eat. So reds and the blues, you know, or purples, things like that, are the first thing that they eat. But by planting different cultivars or different fruited, uh, you know, different color uh, fruit plants, um, you're going to increase the time that birds will be in your yard, that they have food available in your yard. So if you plant a red bush and a, or in the American Beauty Berry, if you plant those three color forms, 
You'll keep them around. You'll keep them around longer because they keep coming back for more. So, yes, there's a, a definitely a, a, a preference in color. And the plants do that as well. I mean, I've originally winter or the, the hollies could have been white fruits, but they weren't very successful because the birds didn't like white. So, so do we know sudden, that to be true or no, are you speculating? No, I'm, I'm speculating. Okay. So at one point, a mutation occurred. And one of the seedlings, the female seedlings, started producing red berries. And it became more successful than the white berried form because the birds were more attracted to it. So a lot of this happens because there's that mutualism between plants and animals. They work together to, to optimize survival strategies. So red attracts birds. Therefore, fruit, most fruit that we see on plants, on most of, most of your list here is going to be red fruits. Right, right. Because it's the most successful in order to disseminate your seeds. It's great. It's great. It's great. You know, one thing I was thinking, you know, it's a shame that gardeners, I mean, we preach on this show that, you know, fall, winter, fall, winter, as opposed to spring planting. And when, if we could lure people into the nursery in the fall, when the berries and the fall foliage are out on the plants and get them to go in, you know, and go to native plant sales in their area. Because, you know, the people that promote natives, they, you know, that's what they do. Right. I mean, at the at the Chattahoochee Nature Center, we try to promote just natives. Now, we do have a few non-natives as well that have served us very well over the years that attract particular species of butterflies or birds or things like that that have also been deemed non-invasive. So we do promote those as well at this time. It may change in the long run. Mm-hmm. But through, you know, organizations like the Master Gardening Program, through um, extension offices, through all of these uh, radio shows like this, we can disseminate information to people. And we have a lot of great knowledgeable people around the country that can provide information about this. Um, fall is the best time to go to a nursery. Fall is the time when, you know, they will drop their leaves. They start producing new roots. There are always exceptions to that rule, but primarily you should do most of your planting, of, especially of larger plants, shrubs, and trees in the fall. The exception to that is conifers. Conifers like to be planted in the springtime. That's the only exception to that that I know. But as plants go dormant, they typically produce more of a root system because they're taking all the energy from the leaves and bringing it back into the shrub or tree. And with that energy, they develop better root systems and and structures. So that's the time to go. Fall is the time to go, and you can get some great bargains. Uh, Most nurseries still cater to the spring and summertime customers. So all of a sudden, fall comes around, nobody's there. All of a sudden, you see your favorite shrub 50% off. So it's a great way to get bargains, and you know that you're going to have a great plant in the ground with a lot less care. They won't need as much watering. They don't need as much, you know, uh, looking after. And they can go through their first winter outdoors with no problems in the ground. And then the next year, you just have to keep an eye on them. Right, right. You know, Anita had made a list. You know, when you're in the garden, if you can get in there in the fall, you still have decisions to make. Do you want, like, ornamental? Do you want, are you going to use the berries or are you going to let the birds Mm -hmm. eat them? Um, and we still haven't even touched on other winter wildlife that are going to be in our yard and eating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you really need to kind of get a plan. And, of course, uh, 
We all want the squirrels in our backyard. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, <laughs> that was. We were just as I call them the bushy-tailed tree rats. Yeah, that's well. what they are. Hey, I, they, I, they serve their purpose here in Atlanta and, and here in Georgia this year was the I think uh, it was the year of the squirrel. They were very common this fall. The conditions were great for them this year. They moved around a lot, um, but now it's starting. The numbers are starting to dwindle again because the predators have caught up. Now the red-tailed hawks and the red-shouldered hawks, the foxes uh, that we have here, will go after them in these numbers, and then all those predators will have a heyday next year. Yeah. So their numbers go up and the squirrel number goes down. So they keep each other in balance. Sometimes you'll see more squirrels and sometimes you'll see more of the predators. Thank God. Yep. And the cycle is yearly? I mean, it will change from year can, to year? It can change or yearly. Longer? Uh, sometimes it's two or three years before you see an effect. Okay. So. Okay. Well, I have my uh, sex in the city joke. What's the difference between a squirrel and a rat? Squirrel? Anita? I think that one's for you. You know that answer. I do. Squirrels have cuter outfits. <laughs> so anyway, okay, we're going to take a quick break and be back with our last segment of the Master Gardener Hour. Hi, I'm Ray Bowman, hoping you'll join us each Friday at noon for our new show, Food and Farm, brought to you by FeedStuffsFoodLink.com, only on America's Web Radio. This is Peter Wallace inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you. God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with my co-host Anita McKee and Henning von Schmeling, and we are talking about birds in the winter garden. It's our last segment of the Master Gardener Hour, and we are going to talk about something that in the break I said I really don't understand. And believe it or not, Henning said he didn't understand it either, but we're going to talk about it. And it's migrating birds, and I just, I see birds migrating, I see flocks of birds migrating, and I don't understand how they know to stop, how they know where to go. I just must have been asleep during that in school. So let's talk about that. It's, I mean, it's a huge concept. I mean, it's very simple. You know that bird species A, whatever, goes from one region in the and the climate gets different and they move somewhere else and then they raise their babies and then from there they move back to where they originally came from. So that's migration in a nutshell. How do they do that? There are many factors that affect migration. One is temperature. Um, one is food resources. Um, it is believed that birds use magnetic field of the earth in order to guide them north and south. 
they use um, thermals, wind patterns. Um, most of the migratory birds that we have in the United States that we see coming through are warblers. We have some shorebirds. We have cranes. We have seagulls, pelicans, all of those. The white pelican migrates. Most of the time, they will spend what we consider winter in their wintering grounds. It's warmer. There's food available. But if you talk to an ornithologist, somebody that studies birds, that is their home. The warbler that spends the winter in, in Mexico and uh, South America, they are actually native to there, and they only come to visit us in the United States for about three to four months a year to raise their babies. As soon as they're done raising their babies, so they are truly they visitors. They're visitors, visitors right. to North America, correct? They're visitors and reside in South America. I was called on that by a um, scientist down in South America when I was down there, and we were looking at some of the. This was in the winter time. We were looking at all these, what I called North American native birds, that are down here in, in uh, French Guiana spending the winter. And he looked at me and says, "Well, they're our birds. Think about it. They only come to see you to raise their babies." And a lot of animals do that. If you look at... You know, and the babies fly back with the parents uh, yes. and don't live there. So they, they stay long enough to get the babies out of the nest and into the Correct. air, and then they go back. Correct. Okay. So that's what warblers do. They're actually native to the tropical rainforest, and they would not be able to survive here in North America through the winter. So they only come here in springtime, spend the summer, and then leave in the fall. Okay, do the, do the birds that we have in our, like, you know, bluebirds and robins and sparrows, do they migrate? Bluebirds do something a little bit different than migration, a true, in the sense of migration, the true migration. They move with the weather patterns. So they're actually native to the United States. And as we, as winter progresses further south from Canada into the United States, they start moving with the cold fronts further south. So right now in the southeast along Texas Gulf Coast um, uh, of the United States, you're going to see large accumulations of bluebirds. But they're not resident there. There's a resident population there. But then all these migrants that come from the northern climate. As soon as it warms up a little bit, all those migrants start moving north again. Okay, are these guys that are coming south into mm -hmm. the Gulf Coast are they the ones that are going to move in somebody's bluebird box, or are they just going to come kind of spring. hang out? No, come spring, they, they'll move back north. And now, move into the box. Right. So would, would a bluebird would not move into a box in the winter? There's there, there are two different boxes that you can put up. You can put a nesting box up, or you can put a roosting box up. Bluebirds have been known to roost together in large family groups. So... The original pair of birds that comes back in the spring, they raise consecutive clutches of eggs every year. Okay. So in a good year, they might have four clutches of eggs, so they have anywhere from 10 to 16 babies you know, flying around with them by the end of the summer. In a bad year, they might just have one or two clutches that make it, depending on weather, food availability, and all that. And they will roost together communally. So you can build a box that has little rungs on the inside, little perches, that bluebirds will use on cold nights. In nature, they'll find large cavities in a tree, a small you know, rock overhang, and they huddle underneath there to stay warmer overnight. You might have seen wrens do that as well. A lot of times, wrens will congregate in family groups and huddle together to preserve heat on cold nights. 
Right, right. So they would benefit from roosting boxes as well. Now, if you go with the weather, chances are it's not going to get cold enough for you to have to use a roosting box. Right? So robin, the American robin that is all over the eastern United States is another one of those birds that moves with the climate. They don't, all the ones up in upstate New York don't say, oh, it's September, we must go down to the Gulf of Mexico. And they don't fly in a straight shot all the way down they there. They just slightly move down. They go down to southern New York, then they okay. go into Virginia, then they come, you know, as the weather progresses and gets colder, they move with the weather. Do birds ever, like, congregate toward the coast because there's less snow and the more prevailing winds come in? Or is that... Is that? There's a couple of reasons. One, typically the climate is a little bit milder along the coast. Okay. Yes, because of the sea or the the winds coming off of the ocean. We have the Gulf Stream that comes up on the east coast of the United States that keeps it a little bit warmer. Um, but primarily, the, the reason why there's such a congregation of birds along the coast is it's a dead end. You can't fly anywhere else. So you're a land bird. You are dependent on trees and forests right, and woodlands. Right. You come to the coast yeah. and you look over there; it's all water. Yeah, it's not your habitat, so you got to stay on the land, and then more push in and more push in, so you have a larger congregation of birds along the coastlines in the right. winter months. Well, I'm a sailor, so the only things that ever tag along with our sailboat are the gulls and the right. you know the, the seabirds. Right, and right. then they'll come and they get tired, and guess what? They roost all over your boat, and guess they what do. they do all over your boat? Mm-hmm. You know. Your children feed them Cheerios, and then they use the bathroom all over your boat. (laughs) Is there anything our listeners can do to attract birds when they're migrating in the winter? Well, again, I mean, uh, bird migration, most of the birds that migrate are insect eaters. Okay, so unless you're willing to put out a whole bunch of crickets and mealworms and attract a lot of mosquitoes and flies, and you know, then Hmm. you really won't attract them. Having, you know, large trees in your backyard is a great resting site for them. Um, one of the trees and one of the plants that I use extensively in landscapes here in Atlanta is called wax myrtle, Myrica serifera. And it has a lot of little nooks and crannies on their stems in the nodes where small insects hide for the winter. And we get ruby crown kinglets. We get yellow runt warblers, which I also call butterbutts, kind of cute. We have the golden crown kinglets. These are all semi-migratory birds that move with the weather. And they use those shrubs extensively to find their food. So if you would come to the Nature Center today, we could walk by every single wax myrtle, and you will see kinglets and yellow rump warblers in them that are migratory birds coming through. Wow. Because they find plenty of food. You know, you're talking about the insects and the mealworms and everything. I need to mention mealworms, and I didn't even think about that. My brother-in-law has these, like, platforms in his backyard, and he Mm -hmm. goes and buys mealworms and just lays them out there. And, oh, my gosh. Birds come in. It's a free-for-all. Yeah, Yeah, bluebirds love them. Uh, Carolina wrens love them. I mean, anybody that is raising their babies in the springtime or in the summertime, that is a huge little packet of protein for their babies. When you think about it, mealworms, it's a, it's a larva of a beetle. They gobble them up and take them to their babies and feed them. Well, I mean, that's what you, and you, visualize, well. you visualize, you know, a mother bird feeding her baby, and it looks like a little mealworm. Mm-hmm. That's it. So that's, that's it. I they mean, stuff that whole worm just right down into their mouth, into their beak, and so they I'm gobble kinda, it down. I'm kind of shocked. You know, the thing, I never thought about a bird, new baby bird being born, Growing, learning to fly, and then within that same season, being able to make a long migration. Mm-hmm. They do. Wow. They do. Yeah. 
I mean, some of these birds will fly. I mean, there's a there's a, uh, a species of seabird that during migration flies from the Arctic to the Antarctic, and they do that every year twice, back and forth. Mm. And the babies go. The babies and the ba- go obviously, them. the babies make it because it's a matter of building up your flight muscles and building up enough of your fat reserves. When you see a bird in the fall that is migrating, let's say warblers, I've seen it more commonly on warblers than anybody else, is they have areas along their chest that they can build up fat. And when you blow the feathers from their chest, if you, I've been at the bird banding station down on Jekyll Island many times, mm-hmm. and in the fall they have the mist nets up and they catch the birds and they band them and they record the vitals and, and you know what size it is, what species. And then they look at fat reserves. And if you blow the feathers, you know, ruffle the feathers kind of, and you look at their chest area, it will be bright yellow with fat. They store it right underneath the skin. You can see it through the skin. And you can see how much reserves they have. I'm glad everywhere I have fat, it doesn't turn yellow. (laughs) No kidding. That would be disgusting. (laughs) So you, you can see that it's yellow. Yes. That's and then so interesting. the scientists, the ornithologists studying at this uh, banding station, they make notes and say the species had fat reserves of 40% or 50%. They make a judgment call and they compare it to one another. And that will give them the idea also of how far can this bird travel without having to rest again because they have the fat reserves. Most uh, warblers uh, migrate at night. They fly high in the sky when it's dark, so they use either stars or magnetic fields to guide them. And they use up these fat reserves. And then as they use them up night after night, then they come down and start feeding heavily to build up fat reserves again and then move further south. Migration is also timed with the highest concentration of insects available because insect populations increase through the summer into the fall. So there's a lot of food available for them. It also is timed with most berry and seed production. Uh, Question. Are some birds vegans and some carnivores? Yes. Carnivore, carnivores? Carnivores, and then there's omnivores. Okay. They don't eat anything. Yeah, I'm just so. kidding about the vegan, but omnivores. <clears throat> no, they're, they're, they're definitely, well, you can't really call them strictly vegan. When they eat a sunflower seed that has a small little worm in it, right. you're not a vegan anymore. But, right. I mean, that's I would consider that almost like incidental take. Oops, I didn't really want so to. So are the migratory bur- birds that go the long distances, are they more the um this The shorebird that I was, or the seabird that I was referring to is definitely a carnivore. They eat only protein rich uh, foods. Uh, the warblers are insect eaters primarily. Some of them will eat berries and, and fruit. Um, but others, for example, uh, a bluebird will eat insects, but they'll also eat berries. If you want to attract bluebirds or feed them in the winter time, uh, put out some grapes, put out some um, uh, oranges that you slice up so they can get some extra little sugar out of that to keep some energy going through the night. Uh, so they, they'll eat almost anything that's available. Uh, and then there's others that are pretty much uh, um, you know, uh, vegetarians. The goldfinch is one of them. Even the goldfinch, even though the goldfinch here in Atlanta will feed their young some insects, the primary source of food for them, for their babies, is sunflower seeds of our native sunflowers. The reason That's the other reason why this bird, the goldfinches, do only nest once a year, and they nest at the end of the summer into fall. Because that's when the food is available to raise their babies. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So, 
Okay, I tell you something, Henning. This has been uh, an amazing show, and oh I have learned so much. Well, thanks for having me. I just want to say this Chattahoochee Nature Center is really a wonderful uh, local example of the native habitats. It's a great place to watch birds if you have nothing better to do. And I would say it's really fun to go there in the winter. And um, I would just love for our listeners to join us there. Thanks for being with us. Have a good week. Be safe.